asked myself today are really related to brain health, which is very important to me. Um, and that's also because of my family and because I, I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease. And Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, affecting 5.6 million people in the United States alone. So it's a really big deal. And the fact that it runs in my family is a little bit of a concern for me in terms of, <laughs> yeah, exactly, it is a concern. And so the way it played out in my family is that my grandmother um, developed dementia and then her two younger sisters also developed dementia and their brother did not. So it's kind of female-based in my, in my family. And what I did not know is that Alzheimer's actually affects more women than men all over the world, or at least in all the countries that we have data for. My scientists are I'm precise about that. And, and that's really important to me. And it really kind of guided my entire career as a scientist and as a clinical scientist. Um, I am now the associate director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Wild Cornell. And it's not promoting anything, it's just, just to state that my family really shaped my career trajectory, which led me to move into New York and becoming a professor and now really taking over this big job at Wild Cornell Medicine. And what's really important to me is that I just launched the Women's Brain Initiative at Wild Cornell, where we're focusing on women's health, women's brain health, and specifically preventing Alzheimer's disease and dementia in women. And really not just Alzheimer's prevention, but really optimizing cognitive health in women. And to me, that's really important because, you know how in 2018, the Me Too movement was such a big deal, and it kind of replaced in some ways the lean-in movement. It was more like, oh, women can totally do everything by themselves. And, and then Me Too was saying, well, that's not exactly the case for the vast majority of women because women are abused, women are neglected, women are mansplained, women are overlooked legally, financially, societally, and culturally in so many ways. And that really extends to medicine. Women have been overlooked in medicine as well, and especially in my field, which is neurology. So my goal is to prevent Alzheimer's. And um, most of my research is based on the understanding that um, if you wait until patients have Alzheimer's disease, then your options are more limited. Whereas if you address any issues preventatively, you have much more power. And that's due to the fact that the brain is a very special organ and it's pretty much the only organ in the body that does not regenerate. So all our cells in the body are continuously replaced and renewed. Like we shed hair all the time, but they regrow. Um, even our skeleton is renewed. Like every year you get 10% of a new skeleton, which is really counterintuitive in some ways, but our bones change, our blood changes all the time which is also the reason that so many diets can work in a short amount of time, is that our cells change very quickly. But no, that doesn't happen in the brain. The neurons that make up um, most of our brains and, and our um, astroglia and microglia, they are broadly born with us, especially neurons. They're really born with us, and they stay with us for a lifetime. 
So neurogenesis, which is the birth of new neurons, is very limited and very circumscribed to like specific brain regions. But by and large, our brains age with us. So you really have to, to keep your brain healthy for the long term. And it's much easier to, to support a healthy neuron than regrow a sick one. Like right now, we don't really have therapies that really regrow neurons. So Alzheimer's is a disease that kind of kills your neurons over time. And once they're gone, they're pretty much gone. So, you know, there are things that one can do pharmaceutically to ameliorate the symptoms. There are drugs that we have available, like uh, FDA-approved drugs like acetylcholinesterase inhibitors or memantine. And they do help lessen or stabilize symptoms for a few years, but they can't stop disease progression. So what we're interested in is disease modification is really stopping it before it's, it's too severe or before it's too advanced. And so at the clinic, at the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic, um, we, we really try to tell people what to do in a preventative way. And it's not just us, it's a lot of other people and a lot of other clinicians that are actively engaging in prevention. And it's really new in my field, um, especially in the field of neurology. I think until four years ago, nobody would really dare use the word prevention out loud because so many doctors, so many other clinicians would just label you as a quack right away and, and you will lose credibility overnight. But now I find scientists are much more open to this. So what happened four years ago is that the National Institute on Health and the Alzheimer's Association got together and they led a council they really, um, they called many scientists who are leaders in the field, and all together they came to the conclusion that Alzheimer's disease is indeed a preventable illness in many cases. And that was largely based on a fantastic paper that came out um, a few years ago. So it's a population-based estimate of risk, and it was shown very clearly that at least a third of all Alzheimer's cases are not caused by genetic mutations, but rather by the way we live our lives. And that's a very powerful message. It's also important to, to clarify that um, when I started in this field, which is in college, so it's a really long time ago, uh, everybody thought of Alzheimer's as something that was caused by bad genetic mutations or aging or both. And over time, it really turned out that neither of these alternatives is actually the case, universally the case. So there, there are genetic mutations that cause Alzheimer's, but they're found in less than 1% of the general population. Well, so it's really important to me to, to understand that for my own family history and the fact that you know, three women got sick and, and the men did not. And um, I do not know if there's a genetic mutation involved in my family. If it is, it's not aggressive. And the reason I'm saying that is um, we know that there are three genetic mutations that cause a very aggressive form of Alzheimer's disease, which is called an early onset form. And usually people get sick when they're in their 30s and 40s, sometimes 50s. So it's a very early onset form of Alzheimer's that is um, defined by very high penetrance. Uh -huh. So if you had a mutation, your chances of, of developing dementia are close to 100%. There are 
other mutations that are recessive or there are different patterns of transmission um, found in the late onset form of Alzheimer's after age 60 or 65. And my grandmother and her sisters got sick when they were more like in their 80s, so very late onset of disease. However, there's a sex effect there. Like three women, one man, the women get sick, the guy does not. I'm concerned about that, and, and a lot of my research has been really about maternal transmission of Alzheimer's and how that affects risk in the children and in the generations to come. But much more important than that, I think, is to really um, understand that what you need to do to prevent Alzheimer's disease differs if you're a man or a woman. And this is very new. I think it's just maybe a year or two that people have enough data, the doctors have enough data to really come to conclusions that are reliable and effective. So men and women tend to develop Alzheimer's for different reasons. So if you exclude those with clear genetic mutations, then the risk factors that cause or that um, trigger Alzheimer's or promote Alzheimer's disease in men and women are, are actually different. So the process uh, for diagnosis of Alzheimer's differs depending on the symptoms. So a patient comes to the clinic and um, let's say it's very clear that there's a cognitive impairment, then we would follow one protocol. If instead um, the patient or, or the, the participant in a way um, is not affected, does not have any cognitive impairment, but is a risk for Alzheimer's, because the parents had Alzheimer's or because of other reasons, then we would follow a different protocol. So in general, we start with a medical evaluation and the neurological exam, because we need to make sure that um, whatever issues the patient comes to the clinic for are not caused by something else. And the screening process is very thorough. Like we need to look for thyroid disease, we need to look for vitamin deficiencies, we need to look for anything that can be going on in the brain, uh, like stroke, or some vascular issue, or a condition that is brain tumors, or normal pressure hydrocephalus, you know, and all these things um, we can screen for using different tools, like we do blood tests, we do a lot of screenings, and we do brain scans. So this is a very specialized examination, and it's not what your typical doctor would do. They do check for some parameters like thyroid function, uh, cholesterol levels, triglycerides. Like the basic tests are usually done um, by a GP, but then we add a whole other level. The clinical process for a diagnosis of Alzheimer's has been upsetting for most patients because what happens is that you know, you're not feeling good, you don't remember name, you can't remember names as easily as you used to, you're, you're misplacing your possessions, or you know, there are concerns about memory, and then what do you do? You know, who do you talk to? Most people will go to their general practitioner, who, and usually a GP is not trained or equipped to really deal, mm -hmm. to make an Alzheimer's diagnosis. So the GP will do some basic screening tests, like thyroid function, uh, cholesterol levels, heart, an EKG can be done easily. Uh, maybe some memory testing if the GP is really high class. Once those are done, if you test negative,
for these findings, or even if you test positive, I think what happens is that they will send you to a specialist. And depending on your doctor, they may send you to a gerontologist, a doctor for older people. Uh, they could send you to a neurologist, which is actually the right thing to do in case of a, of a um, suspect diagnosis of a thumbs. Radiologist is actually a smart thing to do because it, maybe there's a stroke, uh, maybe there is something something going on in the brain, maybe there's a cancer can cause that or malformations of, of some sorts. Uh, or a neuropsychologist. Sometimes that, that's also a viable option to get tested for memory, attention and language and see if you have deficits. So as a, as a clinician and as somebody who specializes in Alzheimer's prevention, I believe that one day hopefully everybody will, will be tested for an increased risk of Alzheimer's so that prevention can be implemented very early on in life. Right now, I would say the United States are not, like as a country, we're not big on prevention. And one of the major limitations in one of the reasons that there aren't as many Alzheimer's prevention clinics as one would hope is that you get no money back. Like insurance won't cover anything done preventatively. So right now, colonoscopies are covered, the flu shots are covered, mammograms are covered, but that's about it. So anything that is more high-level prevention that is not packaged into an Alzheimer's prevention CPT code, is what it's called, we get no money for it. So for patients who are interested in Alzheimer's prevention and want to come to, to the clinic, um, there are inclusion criteria. So we only work, we only take, at the moment, we only take on patients um, who, are obvious, who are potentially at risk for Alzheimer's, so those with a family history of Alzheimer's, or many people are now doing uh, genetic tests, like 23andMe or Ancestry.com, and there's an option to find out a specific gen genotype, it's called the APOE gene, A-P-O-E, and it comes in three forms naturally, and one of the three forms increases risk of Alzheimer's. It's called the APOE4 gene. And so many patients will just come to us and say, I got this, this test result. I understand that my risk of Alzheimer's is higher than people who don't have the same gene. You know, can you help out? And so if you do qualify, um, it costs you nothing because we actually take insurance. And I believe, I mean, as long as you have an insurance, right? Um, an insurance plan, then we will take, uh, we work on assignment, so we take whatever your insurance gives us. Uh, there's, I believe there's, um, there's a copay, I think. Don't remember exactly how much it is. But it's basically the same as going to a doctor. You just get a lot of tests. And for some of our patients, um, we're also doing brain scans. And the way, so, and no cost to participants, because I am funded by the NIH. So the government, um, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm the very lucky recipient of three grants from the NIH that are all really um, focused on this. So uh, understanding risk factors for Alzheimer's in men and women. Um, so all the brain scans I pay for, I mean, the NIH actually pays for them. So all my participants, all the people who en end up working with me, uh, receive brain scans, like a lot of brain scans, and they're fascinating. I think they're, they're wonderful tests, and they hope that one day everybody will get their brain scan. 
So the way it works after you get all these tests done um, is that there are some results that are FDA approved and some tests that are not. So the brain scans are not FDA approved. So what happens is that we can disclose the results of all the tests that are FDA approved, including some brain scans like the MRI scans. We cannot disclose results that are not FDA approved and that's um, because those are considered research tests and there is no universal way to interpret them. It's not like a blood test that you have a reference range if you are below or below, mm, above or below, there's a problem we can flag it. Brain scans is a little bit more, some brain scans are a little bit more difficult to interpret. So the, what, what we do is that we have a team. Uh, we have, at this point, I'm working with three neurologists, a nurse practitioner, I have my own assistants, we work with two neuroradiologists, we work, you know, it's a huge team of people. So we, we have a meeting all together, we, we review all the results together, and then one of the neurologists will take the lead and go talk to the participant and say, okay, so these are your results, this is what we understand, these are the risk factors that we need to address for, for prevention. And then we start treatment. And usually for the clinic, um, our preference and what we recommend is that we work with our patients continuously over time. So everybody comes back for follow-ups every six months. We do like a shortened version of the big uh, thing. And I, I re we repeat, I repeat brain scans um, every like year and a half to two years. It would make no sense to do it more often than that. But you know, just checking in every six months is very helpful. And I think most patients really appreciate it because usually you go to your doctor, you, you talk to your doctor for like seven minutes, right? And then they just give you a prescription and you're on your own. We don't do that. Like our, our patients get, spend hours with us, whether they want it or not, you know, they have to, <laughs> to really spend a certain amount of time with us and really understand what we're doing. So there's also an educational component. And then uh, the treatment plans are custom tailored for each person. Well, the procedure I, ju I just described is actually for people with no symptoms. Mm -hmm. So prevention is for people with no symptom, and we identify risk factors that we can address immediately so that they never get Alzheimer's down the line, hopefully, right? For patients with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, the process is different, and we don't do that. We, we refer patients to clinicians who specialize in Alzheimer's treatment after a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So we are on the preventative side. So the, the recommendations range widely uh, from case to case because we believe that uh, prevention should be individualized. There is no one-size-fits-all approach that makes sense really in, in medicine. And that's always been medicine friendly. Just clinical trials uh, give the same drug to a number of people. But for uh, preventative care, also clinical care really should be individualized to the person that's in front of you. <coughs> and so it really depends on your risk factors. Like, let's say um, if you have high homocysteine. So homocysteine is a, is a protein that is found in blood. And if your homocysteine is too high, it means that you have a high, let's do it. If your homocysteine is too high, it increases risk of heart disease. And heart disease is a major risk factor for dementia later in life. The thing about homocysteine <coughs> is that um, it's regulated by B vitamins. 
So it's like, these are your homocysteine and these are your B vitamins, especially B12 and folate. So if your B vitamins are low, your homocysteine goes up. If you bring the B vitamins up, the homocysteine goes down. And the way you manage your B vitamins is through diet and supplementation. And that's where precision medicine comes into play. So we, I think everybody knows that genetics, you know, the, your DNA is actually important. And there are some things that can be quantified very reliably. Also without 23, we don't do 23andMe, we do actual genetic testing. And for instance, many people um, have mutations on the MTHFR gene. So it's a specific gene that regulates the way your body processes the B vitamins. And if you have a specific type of MTHFR gene, then you, your body is not as good as using these B vitamins. And so we give supplements that are methylated, which means they're pre-metabolized. And so they're much, they have a much stronger effect on homocysteine level in people with high homocysteine level. So there's a whole thing, right? Your homocysteine is high, so we need to check your B vitamins. If, if your B vitamins are out of range, we're going to give you either a different diet or supplements depending on your DNA. Mm -hmm. And this is a whole process for everything that is a, is a risk factor for Alzheimer's. And what I'm particularly interested in is really how that plays out differently by gender. So what's really important uh, for me as a scientist and as the director of the Women's Brain Initiative uh, at Cornell is to really understand the risk factors that are more important to address for men and for women. Now, we do know what, what's important for men. We're just learning what's really important for women. And perhaps one of the most important factors for, for women is really measuring hormones and addressing hormonal health. And as a, as a brain scientist, it's very strange for me to be talking about hormones because usually in Western medicine, we look at everything slightly separately. Like if, if I'm looking at your brain, I, I don't quite care about your ovaries, right? Whereas I think it's important to acknowledge that the brain is not an isolated organ, but it's really in charge of the body. And every organ in the body will report back to the brain. There are constant feedback loops and different mechanisms by which your brain really impacts the rest of you, but the rest of you also impacts your brain back. Yes, it's more holistic, it's a more holistic ecological approach. And what we have found using brain scans is that for women, um, going through menopause is a shock to the brain as well as to the rest of the body. And that's quite new. We just published that in 2017 and we showed I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure it was for the first time that, that for some reason we didn't know that before, that um, as women go through menopause, it's not just overnight, but what happens is that you're premenopausal, then your estrogen and your hormones start changing, and then you go to, uh, through perimenopause, which is when you start missing your cycle, and there are a lot of other things going on, and then your postmenopause or menopausal, um, a full year, after your last menstrual cycle. And that's usually around age 51 for most women in the United States, but also um, in the rest of the world. And the brain shows a similar pattern of change. So if we look at brain activity or brain energy in the brain, um, if, you, if you look at 
men and women who are like 40 to 65, or 40 to 60, which is what we, we did, is a little bit of a narrower, more, more precise window. Men are fine. You know, you take a man who's like 40 and a man who's 60, and their, their brain energy levels are broadly the same. And we, we look at presence of Alzheimer's plaques, and there are no plaques, and the brain is nice and just vital in some way. It's just, just usually on average, good-looking good brains. And then we take women, and at this point I've looked at hundreds and hundreds of women, and this is what happens. So if you're premenopausal, your brain energy is just as high as that of a man who's your same age. When you're premenopausal, your brain energy, boom, goes down by a good 20-30%. And once you're postmenopausal, boom, you go even, even lower. For some women, it's up to like a 50% energy reduction, and that seems to really trigger the neurological symptoms of menopause. You know, when women say, I'm having hot flashes, I'm having night sweats, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling depressed all of a sudden, I can't think straight, can't sleep at night, that doesn't start in your ovaries. It starts inside your brain. And these are brain symptoms of menopause that are usually completely overlooked because a woman with the symptoms would go to a gynecologist, not to a neurologist. And so there's really kind of a gap in clinical care that is due to the fact that we don't think of hormones as something that affects your brain. And most importantly, what we have shown is that as the energy levels go down, that's when women start accumulating Alzheimer's plaques. So it's really Alzheimer's disease in women, in the brain of women, begins when we are in our late 40s and 50s. So another question that uh, came up just recently is what happens to um, you know, women mostly who uh, take hormones to change their gender to men. So females with a female DNA who don't, um, who just feel like they should have been born male. And um, this has nothing to do with any societal impact, but just from a purely medical perspective, I wonder about the impact of taking all these other hormones and androgens that you need to take to, to really change your appearance in some ways and you know all the procedures that some people undertake to change the appearance even further than hormones could do and what kind of impact could that have on your brain and I am not aware of any solid research that actually looked into that so it's something that I would personally be very interested in doing and I think it's it's really important as more and more people are really embracing different genders I think it's really important to 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 be aware of what happens to your brain as well as the rest of you and I, I find it something that, that no, nobody really talks about it mm -hmm. so I think it's important to raise awareness that that we need to understand what happens so on that level as well so and just to tell you a little bit about myself, I am obviously Italian, as I'm sure transpires from my accent. Um, I was born and raised in Florence, in Italy, and um, my parents, both of my parents, are nuclear physicists, both of them, which is quite unusual, and they're not the, the, the stereotypical nuclear physicists, but they they are nuclear physicists intellectually and also behaviorally. So I was definitely like the weirdest kid in school. 
for a long time. I had no idea who Cinderella was. Uh, I knew who Einstein was, but not Cinderella. And I, we had no television. So I, was, I, was, I grew up in a very socially uh, unusual <laughs> environment. Um, but I got exposed to research from a very early age. I, um, I started cooking when I was very, very little, I believe five, when my mom first put me in, in front of the stove and I, I enjoyed that enormously. You know, what happens if I boil the milk or scramble the eggs without butter? Or and then I went to school in France. I went to a French high school. The accent is becoming clearer and clearer. And I, I love Paris, of all places, so I think that also had a big influence on me because I, I'm a scientist, but I'm also really interested in lifestyle and nutrition and diet. And then I went to school and I went to college and I, I decided I wanted to, to be a psychiatrist. And then I spoke to a couple of psychiatrists and they realized that the amount of time you spend one-on-one -on -one with your patients is, is a lot more than I was prepared to, to devote myself, you know, my, my time to. And so I, I thought, well, maybe I should just, because I'm, I was so interested in the brain always, all the time. And so I went to neuroscience. And it was the first year um, that specific curriculum just opened in Florence. And so I took an, an exam. They only, um, only a certain amount of people could get in. And so I took the exam, I passed. And so I went to college and then to my mom, she was teaching nuclear physics to some students who then transitioned to medicine, and specifically to nuclear medicine, which is a branch of radiology where you use uh, radioactive isotopes to look at your body, you know, and, and your brain. It's like these pictures of the brain where some parts are blue and green and red. That's nuclear medicine. And they used to babysit me when I was little. And so when I was in college, I was studying right next to them, you know, neurophysiology and whatnot, and I was like, can I come work with you? Can I volunteer? And so they took me in almost immediately. So I did a lot of training with them. I did my thesis in neurophysiology. I was looking at the brain using event-related potential, which is a very cool technique. And then I, I really went to work with them. And then I started my PhD with them, so I have a dual PhD in neuroscience and nuclear medicine. And after six months, I transferred to NYU here in New York. And I thought I was going to be here for just a couple of years, and I never left. Um, so I moved to New York in 2004, and I've been here since. And then, uh, so I finished my PhD, and then NYU hired me immediately as an assistant professor. And then I, I, I became the director of the Family History of Alzheimer's Disease Research Program at NYU. And then I opened my own lab because I really got so interested in how your lifestyle affects your brain above and beyond your DNA. And, and so I went back to school and now I also have a, I'm also a nutritionist. I'm an integrative, like I'm a board certified integrative nutritionist, which is strange for a neuroscientist to also um, be given nutritional counseling, I guess. And then I opened my own lab at NYU. It was, I started my own lab at NYU. It was the, the nutrition and brain fitness lab. 
And then I was recruited at Cornell, and I am now working at Cornell. I started in 2016 as an associate professor of neuroscience and neurology, and the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Prevention Clinic, and the director of the Women's Brain Initiative. Um, you know how there's so much confusion around what to do to help women, especially going through menopause? Right now we understand that it's not just that you, you're not able to have kids anymore, it's just that your brain may or may not suffer. And what happens is that 20% of women have no brain symptoms of menopause, but 80% of women actually do. And all women go through menopause. So it's really something we need, we need to address. And the, the most obvious course of action is to take hormones, like hormonal replacement therapy. But there's so much confusion around it. And um, some studies show that um, estrogen replacement therapy actually increases your risk of cancer of heart disease or dementia. And now we, we're actually starting to understand that it really depends on, on what you do and when you do it. It depends on a woman's age. It depends on whether or not a woman still has a uterus, doesn't have a uterus. It depends on family history. So it's really, it really speaks to um, precision medicine and how every woman should be treated as an individual rather than as the average woman all over the world, and what I thought, um, and, and what, what I think pretty much everybody agrees upon is that there's a window of opportunity during which uh, hormonal replacement therapy would have the greatest chance of success. But that is also individual. Like you can't say it's 45 for this woman and 48 for this other. You know, I mean, I mean you can actually say you can't say it's 45 for all women. It's more different ages for different women, but. Nobody knows how to choose the right age. And the reason for that, and believe it or not, is that we have no tools to measure estrogen activity in the brain. We're in 2019, and we still measure estrogen in, the, in blood, which pretty much has nothing to do with the estrogen inside your brain, because it's not a linear relationship. And so last year, I, I didn't know that. Actually, I had no idea that there, there were no tools to do them. And I, I'm a brain imaging person. That's my, that's my background as we were talking about nuclear medicine. Um, and so I went to my colleagues in radiology and they said, well, I want a tracer. I want a tool to look at estrogen in the brain. And it's like, okay, what, what do you want? And so I did a lot of research and they said, okay, I want this tracer. Can you make it for me? And so we, we, we had all these meetings and the answer is yes. It's doable, and we got, I got a grant from Maria Shriver to actually develop the tracer and test it in people. So we are halfway through tracer development, and we're going to start looking at estrogen in the brain of people, hopefully in April. Well, yes, because you know tracer development is, is tricky. Mm -hmm. So the way, the way it works is that you have a tracer, but then you really need to to be able to use it, and nobody has done it for the brain. So for me, because I, you know, there are different ways to do brain scans. Mm -hmm. There is a very complicated way and an easier way, and you always have to start with a very complicated way to then understand how to do it more easily, which means I'm the first person who's going to get the injection, right, and, and this, this thing measured inside my head. So. That means that I have to be in the scanner for 60 to 90 minutes inside the machine 
you know, these big scanners so that we can inject me when I'm in the machine and then we can see everything that happens inside the brain as the tracer goes inside my brain and starts accumulating and, and shooting out gamma rays for at least 90 minutes because we don't know how long it takes to get a real good picture.